Welcome to Smooth Operator, the podcast that explores affiliate marketing and digital media. I'm your host, Blake Saunders, and I'll be guiding you through this fascinating world by interviewing the brilliant minds and innovative leaders that shape it. So buckle up and get ready to be inspired as we uncover the secrets to success in the world of content and commerce. In each episode, we'll dive deep into the strategies and tactics that have propelled our guests to the forefront of their industries. From creative campaigns to data-driven decision-making, Smooth Operator is your go-to source for staying ahead in the ever-evolving affiliate and content commerce space. Subscribe now and let's get started on this exciting journey together. We have an exciting guest on today's podcast. Her name is Jackie Goldstein, and she is currently the VP of Commerce at the New York Post. She has a really interesting career in media, content, and commerce. We're excited to get into the episode. Thanks, Jackie, so much for joining us today. Why don't we start by having you give us a 60-second overview of your background? Sounds great. Going way back, I was born and raised in Manhattan, went to college at Emerson College in Boston, was a marketing major. Briefly, right after I graduated, was a publicist and I worked with restaurants. Loved that time in my life. PR was not for me and I switched over to the journalism side from there. So I was interning at Eater after my brief PR career. And then from there, I was hired full-time to be the editorial assistant for Curb Network kind of grew there. We were acquired by Vox Media. I'll talk a little bit more about this, I think, later in the conversation, but ended up focusing on podcasts and commerce over time. And then came over to the New York Post about three years ago to build a commerce business here after about six years at Vox. So let's start with Curbed. It sounds like when you joined there, it was a really small team. And it was at a point in New York where there's a lot of these upstart, interesting media companies that were both growing in scale and people and raising money. Yeah, for sure. So Curbed was a great time. You know, we had three different properties. Curbed focused on real estate. Eater focused on restaurants and chefs. And then Racked focused on fashion and that kind of world style. We were really focused on having a lot of local websites associated with each division. So I worked really closely with the people across the nation. It was such an awesome experience because I felt like I was, especially early in my career, I was doing so many audits all the time of the content to make sure things were consistent between sites. And I worked really closely with our president and I kept getting more of his work onto my plate. And I went from doing these site audits to acting as like a managing editor of all the sites. I was working on partnerships. I was doing everything that wasn't like writing content or being associated with the sales team. Usually when you get to wear a lot of different hats, it happens sometimes because you're a high performer and people trust you. So were there things that you felt made you successful at your job as you were working across the different publications and doing different jobs? Yeah, I think that one of the things about me is if I'm involved in something, I care really deeply (laughs) about Mm -hmm. it. Um, And I just, I cared so much about the the upkeep of those sites. I cared about the writers. I cared about the freelancers. I just really wanted to dominate and see success for those sites. I remember visiting LA at one point and I met up with the Curbed LA editor, Adrian. mentioned she was like, 
before you started working here, like everything was chaos and now it's organized. And so that to me was like the greatest compliment that I had received to that point. I think that, you know, being past more and more work, it was something that I was really like excited about because I did feel like it also meant like they trust me to get this done. They know I will do a good job with it. When you were there and the sites were growing, were there different benchmarks or other ways that you judged growth? Obviously, you can always put more content on the site, but what did you look at to decide what was performing, both on like the audience side and the monetization? So in my role there, and that was also much earlier in my career, I was mm-hmm. really just focused on the editorial KPIs. I wasn't really privy to revenue numbers. I did manage some of our distribution partnerships, which were revenue generating, I was more focused on optimizing and making sure that our content was being distributed to those places. And I was pitching and working closely with those editors. On the editorial side, page views were really the KPI. So we were focused on making sure output was there. So making Mm -hmm. sure if we wanted curbed Boston to have three to four articles a day. I remember we had like smaller pieces. I forget what we called them, but like a quick hit, if you will. And then larger articles too. That was something that I was making sure was happening. And also that, again, the content was being distributed to to help as well. We didn't have like an SEO person there. Social was managed by the site editors at the time. It was like very sort of early days. So let's jump into Vox Media. Can you tell us how you ended up there? I was at Curb about three years when we were acquired by Vox Media. It was interesting because it was like we were acquired by a much larger company that was a lot more kind of set up for its size. And it was difficult in the beginning to kind of find like, where do I fit here? Because I used to joke there were like seven people who were doing different pieces of my job. So it just didn't really exist at Vox. And so I had to find holes. And what I've noticed was, particularly in two different spaces, podcasting and commerce, I felt seeds of beginnings of those businesses, but they were really, no one was paying any attention. And so on the podcasting side, basically, I noticed that some of our top editors, like, Ezra Klein, Kara Swisher, were recording podcasts every week, taking hours out of their day, and the shows weren't being monetized. So I identified that as a great opportunity for us. This was also right when Apple was starting to court publishers to participate more in podcasts. It was when the podcast app became a default app for everyone on their phone. So it was a great time for that. And then on the other side, we had a relationship with Skimlinks and Amazon Associates. It was all running in the background, like so many other publishers sort of have begun. I was like, hey, we're making like decent money accidentally here. Can we focus on this as well? And so I was able to hire someone to really help me kickstart that part of the business. I hired someone else to help me on the podcasting side. And so I was in this like weird role. My title was director of editorial operations, but I was like basically co-leading these two baby businesses. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about the transition from when you were working on both podcasts and commerce to deciding, okay, I'm going to make commerce my full-time job. Because obviously 
like you mentioned, you came into Vox. It sounds like you had a couple different paths you could go down. So you must have believed in commerce being a much bigger opportunity in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I would say when I was first kind of thinking about it, I was way less thinking big picture about it. I was not really coming at it at a place of like, this is an effort to diversify the revenue of Vox Media, and this is why it's important. I was more like, these are things that we are, you know, kind of like, they're sort of happening, but they're not optimized. So kind of going back to some of what I was saying before, wanting to, you know, caring, wanting to make things good, wanting to make things like really optimized. It was probably coming from more of a place of that. But then I think once I started to be in both businesses and really learn about both and see the money, you know, at that point in my career, I was also, I had visibility into the revenue. Totally changed my view on it, obviously. I think at the time when Vox first started dipping our toes, it was like, I believe they were still called Gawker then, but Gawker was doing it. And you heard that it was, I think at the time, maybe like a quarter of their revenue. It was a very big piece of the pie. And you started to see other publishers doing it. But I felt like when you were reading like Digiday and the trades and whatnot, it was really, it was a lot about Gawker. So I remember randomly meeting Shane, who was at Gawker, like big in that business at a Halloween party and basically talking to him a lot, learning a lot from him, starting to go to some of the conventions, meeting more people and realizing, oh, wow, okay, this is actually like a big space. And this is just going to keep growing on the publishing side too, as publishers are trying to make more money any way that they can, especially to diversify so that it's not all advertising dependent. So at Vox, walk us through the beginning from shifting from just throwing links on articles to actually having a focused effort. And then how did that team progress? Did you start to have full-time commerce writers? Did you build out new parts of the sites that were dedicated to affiliate? Yeah. So I would say with every editorial operation, organization, it's set up a little differently when it comes to commerce. So in some instances, you know, the commerce writers live within editorial. In other instances, they live on the business side. Sometimes there's like a dotted line sort of situation. So when we first started, I was hiring under me and I was reporting to our publisher. So I was mostly editorial. And I think that helped because there was a lot, I would say the beginnings were a lot of conversations and negotiating with editors who were excited about the idea of commerce and making money, but didn't really want to do what I felt like was totally necessary to actually make it a business and not just a hobby where we can expect however many thousands of dollars coming in a month. So the beginnings were a lot of negotiations. And then what I always kind of talk about is how and this has been true here at the post too. You you basically you can you try to like get the door open and then keep opening it with more and more evidence about why this is good. I was really framing sales as an engagement of KPI. And I think that that was one thing that was helpful with our teams, especially at Vox, because we could really show like how powerful the content was to the audience. We always think about and thought about like levels of engagement, there's kind of like, okay, you, you follow a publisher on Twitter. So you're 
you're a little more interested than the average person who maybe doesn't know what the publisher is. You might follow them on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, you know, wherever. You might wear clothes from the brand. That is probably one of the highest levels of engagement, maybe the highest. But shopping through the brand is probably like somewhere maybe in the middle. Was your goal with the content to try to pick up people that were already coming to the site? Or were you trying to, with the Vox content and the other sites in their portfolio, or were you trying to start to rank for certain, what's the best appliance? Both. Yeah. So the... The main site I was doing the most, we weren't, we weren't really working with every single property. Like for example, even though Eater was kind of how I started my whole journey with this company, I was not really doing much on the affiliate side with them, except in the end, we started to once it was kind of built up more. The sites I was working the most closely with were, you know, The Verge by far, Polygon, and SB Nation, we also invested in. The Verge was the most successful of those three, at least at the time. And so I would say for certain things like new product launches, we dominated on search and did really well. Especially I remember like getting so excited whenever a new Samsung phone was about to come out and be available to order because that was always like a big day for us. We also did a lot of stuff. You know, we had a weekly column called Good Deals. And it was basically just kind of a roundup. So it was more geared towards kind of like people who were on the site. We tried to get it some good distribution spots on articles. You know, at those sites, we had, at least at the time, homepage traffic, but it wasn't like a huge number. It wasn't necessarily a growing number at all. So, you know, we did leverage the homepage a tiny bit, but more so kind of sections, articles, things like that. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely, depending on kind of what we were doing, if it was a launch, it was search. If it was sales, it was more site. Though, obviously, for the biggest sale moments, like the Prime Days and Black Fridays and Cyber Mondays, we were also really focused on search. So you left Vox and joined New York Post. Different end of the political (laughs) spectrum, but (laughs) similar audience in that they're coming more for news. Obviously, you mentioned Vox owned some of the different technology sites, so they had a bit more high intent audience. But what excited you about the move to the New York Post? Yeah, I've really seen it all coming from (laughs) Vox, going to the Post. One of the things that I was really excited about at the Post was, one, I had already built this business, basically. So I was coming in with fresh eyes, having seen things I would have done differently, having spent more time in this industry in general, seeing what every publisher has been doing, and being able to have the opportunity to launch at a large, established publication was really exciting. So that was one piece of it. Another thing that was great that helped set us up for success here was our CEO, Sean Giancola. He was really prioritizing commerce. He had been the chief revenue officer, stepped into the CEO role, and number one priority was revenue diversification. And there were a couple of different strategies. Commerce was one of them. Podcasts was another. So my first few months here, I was like participating in podcast meetings and trying to help. And then one of the others was we launched a a new subscription for sports, which the New York Post is really known for sports coverage. So commerce has really taken off here. I think that 
we ran into some issues in the beginning around turf wars, if you will. Once again, I was building this business under me. We ended up determining that it would probably be the most successful living in editorial. And so we've been able to set that up really nicely. Some of the reasons for that were things like the editorial team, it's divided amongst the different sections. So the entertainment section, there's editors, there's writers, but then those sections have other people they work with that are more centralized, copy editors, photo editors, things along those lines. And so what we were struggling with was when commerce writers were just under me, it was like we were on an island and it seemed like the sort of more centralized resources weren't prioritizing commerce as much. They didn't totally understand it. They thought it was like a separate revenue initiative. So they would prioritize what is the top sensational story that we will make the most traffic from. Once we moved into editorial, it became a lot smoother. We became part of the process. One of our established editors took commerce under his wing. Him and I worked so closely. I worked so closely with the writers. To this day, like there's not a day goes by where I'm not talking to our writers, at least probably like once or twice a day. So we've been able to set something up where there's the editorial side, there's the business side. There are some dotted lines, but we just have the process set really well for our success. You gave this imagery of like opening the door and then keep opening it more. Can you just contextualize that from an editorial perspective? So say you've been at The Post for 30 years as a writer, and then Jackie shows up and says, hey, here's a new editorial commerce writer. They need to also publish on your beat. And then that writer has to internalize, okay, I've been writing these articles. I'm a journalist, you know, blah, 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 like focused on audience. And now you just threw someone into my world where part of their motivation is to write to get someone to buy something. So how do you get these professional journalists to accept the, the new regime or this new idea of commerce? Yeah. So at the Post, especially, I mean, you kind of hit it on the head. There are a lot of people who have been with this paper for like 25, 30 years. The paper was founded in 1801, and it's considered to be America's oldest newspaper. And obviously has gone in so many directions since that founding. Now it's primarily a digital property. But I would say the sports side it was a little more challenging to start working with them. I remember having some early conversations with the editor, Chris Shaw, who is amazing and like <laughs> love to talk to him about sports because he knows more than anyone, obviously. But I remember having a few conversations with him early on. I think we were talking about fanatics. I was wanting to grow our fanatics relationship. I had worked with fanatics for years from my time at SB Nation. And he was referring to the content as ads. And I was kind of like, well, it's not necessarily purely an ad. It does have an affiliate partner in there, but they're not dictating what we're creating. We feel like if we can put something up and it's successful, then, you know, there is, you know, I kind of went back to that sort of like audience engagement as sales type of thing. So looking at the sales as a KPI of like, does the audience care? And if they don't, then, you know, we test and we move on because there's so many opportunities with the post. The way that we've been doing it 
has been mostly building a section where this lives. So it's called the shopping section. We actually had one of the most fun memories of my my work here so far has been when I first started, it was also pretty early on, we wanted to come up with a fun name for the shopping section. And the New York Post is known for puns and funny headlines and wordplay and things like that. And so basically, I was able to harvest the power of the whole newsroom to submit ideas for what this section was going to be called. And we got some really good ones. My favorite was Shop the Presses. We ended up not using that because it felt... We weren't sure if younger audiences would know the phrase Stop the Presses even. So we moved away from that, sadly. I would say another thing that you kind of consistently see newsroom to newsroom is like certain writers and editors are going to be excited about commerce and want to be that Swiss army knife who knows a little bit about everything. You know, it's like the kind of person who takes it on themselves to learn Photoshop so they can do some of their own imagery. It's the person who wants to look at their own traffic and understand, even if they're, you know, given reports on some sort of cadence, they are hungrier to look more quickly. I find that usually it's that type of person, a little more entrepreneurial, who can get really excited and understand this is now part of the publication business and wanting to sort of understand it, wanting to get involved with it. But, you know, editor to editor, writer to writer, it's a little different. I think that through my time here, I feel like the way that the door opens wider is just with more good examples and case studies and things that you can point to. So if you can show some success from, hey, like we... We've done great work with our streaming platform partners on the entertainment section. Here's here's a look at what's been going on. Like here's where the where it is, here's how much money we've made, here's how many referrals we've driven for these platforms, and here's why it's useful and also helping our business. I think showing something like that to a different team, that it just kind of like continues to sort of build openness and excitement. I want to go to that point on data to, to wrap this up. So everything you've been saying is super interesting. So you mentioned at the beginning of your career, you really didn't get to see the money side of it. You you know, you know saw the, the audience side, but now that you're in a leadership role, how do you view traffic, monetization data in terms of its reach inside of an organization? How do you think about that in terms of empowering people, getting them to be better at their job, getting them to be excited about the wins, especially in the affiliate world where there's, I think, more things to measure. Yeah, I have made our team a completely transparent team. So the whole team is seeing revenue numbers and everything that they could see, really. I will show performance on an article level in general. I don't necessarily share the full annual, here's what everything is that I receive from finance. But for making our content stronger, I think that's so important for everyone to have visibility into as much as they can see, really. So the main things that our team is looking at is, and we're actually doing a lot of work in the past year, we've finally been able to bring on a data person who's focused on consumer revenues. Her name's Chloe. She's amazing. She's like a shared resource 
between my team, the commerce team, and our consumer marketing team. So she also helps with data around home delivery and the sports subscription that we have. But on the commerce side, I've been really excited to have her help us really drastically improve our article level reporting. And so Mm -hmm. that is what the whole team looks at that all day, every day, but especially on Mondays at three o'clock. And (laughs) the main things we're looking at is revenue per page on usually a weekly cadence. So, you know, what's the RPM in a week or revenue per page rather in a week. And then we are also looking at clicks and sales. We sometimes look at page views. It's not a major thing for us, but we actually more think about page views as something to show we might need to change certain things because if there's an article we have on the best shampoos, according to some hair expert. And traffic-wise, it does gangbusters. It's one of our mm-hmm. highest traffic pieces. But revenue-wise, it's it's really low. And there's a couple of things there, like obviously shampoo is like a very low-priced item. So it can be hard to build that. But with the scale of the page views, you would think it would be higher. So we'll look at things like that and be like, why is this getting so many page views, but no one's converting on it? Is the structure of the article an issue? Mm-hmm. Are our recommendations an issue? Like what's, what's going on here? Um, so we're always looking at stuff like that. And then with our data analyst, we've also been working on projects where she can, she's helping us to set up some like foundational building blocks. So basically product category or advertiser category, if you will, referral source, and then article type are kind of the main ones we're looking at. And that's mostly for our benefit editorially, but more so when I was interested in this with partners in mind. So that way, if a partner comes to us for a CPA campaign or a flat fee campaign, we could say to them, hey, you know, okay, you are using hair care again. You're a hair care brand. Typically in this category, beauty, hair care, we usually see the most performance coming from our search audience on roundups. I'm just making up an example. So what what we'd say to them is like, we'd we'd love to work with you to figure out some high-performing roundups that we can create together or get your brand into for stuff that we have since we have a pretty massive evergreen library at this point. So that's kind of how we're thinking about it with sort of like what I've been just kind of calling these like blocks that you can pick and choose. So if you want to leave one out, that's fine. And then of course, the article data, which is more, we look at that individually a little bit more than we do in aggregate. But once we have these building blocks available, we can look in aggregate there. So if we want to see like, okay, every roundup we've done versus every review we've done, like where are we making more money? And obviously what's the quantity of each? We def, I know we definitely have more roundups currently than we do reviews, you know, so that's sort of how we think about it generally. It makes sense to obviously have the dashboards up and where people can see success and then using that now to inform your sales approach, because if you can go into a a sales meeting and say, hey, here's here's the sort of the three menu choices. We think this is going to perform best, but you can do these other two things. It seems like most advertisers would get excited about that because they can conceptualize sort of the different content that they may be able to access. So, well, thanks so much for your time today. We really enjoyed learning about the evolution of your career. Obviously, you were in New York as digital media really grew up there, but it was really nice. Jackie, thanks for your time. 
Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much, Blake. Thanks, everybody, today for joining the Smooth Operator podcast. I really enjoyed this episode. I think we covered a lot of interesting things from both Jackie's time at Vox and then now her role at the New York Post. Look forward to having you join us next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.